Hi, this is Pod Save the UK. I'm Coco Khan. And I'm Nish Kumar. And it's almost 50 years since anyone who wasn't called Tony Blair won an election as Labour leader. Is this the man to change it? I grew up working class. I've been fighting all my life. And I won't stop now. As Labour wraps up its conference, we examine whether it's ready to govern. Our special guest is the comedian, actor and author, Rob Delaney. Hey there, I'm at UCH with the striking nurses. Wouldn't be anywhere else today. Look at all these wonderful people. We'll find out why Rob has been shoulder to shoulder with nurses on the picket line. Plus, what happened when I went to the Green Party conference in Brighton? Nish, welcome back. Oh, sorry. We've really missed you. Yeah, Coco is laughing because, uh, <laughs> listen, I don't want to give too much of an insight into how we record these, uh, but Coco has just been doing her own impromptu acapella rendition of the theme tune just for everyone's benefit in the studio. I thought it would help people understand their cue. <laughs> it was absolutely wonderful. I like to do it less with a hum and more with a... Bow. <laughs> it, was it, bow. it was a yeah. bow. It was a bow. 1970s <laughs> porn soundtrack guitar. That's exactly what it was. Well, do you know what? That's the unofficial B-side to our <laughs> to our sidetrack is me doing Niall Rogers does. Anyway, uh, welcome back. I'm what back. have you been up to? I've been away for two weeks. Yeah. I've been filming for two weeks. Being a journalist. I've been being a journalist at local newspapers uh, yeah. for a, a Sky TV programme called Hold the Front Page. And I've uh, I worked at an English language newspaper in Benidorm for a week, which was, let me tell you, an extraordinary experience. English people that live in Spain, I can tell you firsthand, do not enjoy being referred to as immigrants. <laughs> I can tell you that from first-hand experience. They prefer expats. They do not enjoy immigrants. (laughs) And are you going to tell us, uh, is it very much like what happens in Benidorm stays in Benidorm? No, I mean, I think what happens in Benidorm is going to air on Sky Max in April. So (laughs) there might be no value in me keeping a complete veil of secrecy over it. No, uh, uh, it's been a a very fun couple of weeks. Did you have a moment when you were like watching the news being like, if only I had some sort of platform in which I could call these people bastards? I, I almost never think that I, I think when you see Rishi Sunak get up and give a speech, you, you have there's a part of you that just thinks, I'm so glad I don't have to fight the urge to call this man a <laughs> in a broadcast medium. I'm so pleased that I don't have to do that. Um, you've been busy. You went to the Green Party conference. I did, yes. Well, I, I was shocked to, to see a video of you well, at the Green fault, Party mate. conference. Why are you Why? shocked? You did it. Why you, did I do it? You so a few episodes ago, yeah. you said that party conferences were Woodstock for dickheads. A statement I stand by. <laughs> you stand by. Yeah. And then obviously you were away filming in Benidorm and the yeah. Green Party, Carla Denyer, who was a guest on the show, of course. sent me a DM saying, why don't Nish and you come down? Yeah. And, and we'll show you that, you know, this is not Woodstock for dickheads. Yeah. It's like Woodstock for nice people. So <laughs> why don't you guys come down? Obviously you were away. So I was like, yeah, all right, I'll come down. How was it? Look, everybody knows about me. I was saying this on the socials. Like yeah. if you say the word party and invite. Yeah. And send it to Coco. I'm like yeah. Candyman in that way. Yeah, Do you know yeah. what I mean? It sort of You're summons me. Yeah, of course. So I was always going to be there, yeah. you know, after the invite. But I definitely had a feeling when I was walking around being like, what is this? <laughs> what is happening right now? Who are these people? Why are they here? What do they gain from it? So, I, I, you know, there was, there was definitely, it was eye-opening. Yeah. So we met up on the seafront and then we walked back to the venue and she told me about their plan to quadruple their number of MPs, which is one MP to four MPs yeah. at the next general election. The U-turns that both the Conservatives and Labour have been making over the last 
few weeks and months has only made it more obvious why we need more green politicians yeah. in this country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why, as you saw in our speech, we are majoring on our campaign four for 24 to get four MPs elected in the general election next year. We've quadrupled our number of local councillors over the last four local elections. And so now that our aim is to quadruple our number of MPs, and that's quite within reach, especially as we've seen in uh, Australia and Canada, which have the same first-past-the-post system, yeah. which admittedly does make it difficult for the Greens. The Greens have achieved it elsewhere, and we're in a similar situation here. We've been working hard for years, so we think we can get Sharon elected here in Brighton and get the other three of us elected in our target seats in Bristol and Waveney Valley and North Herefordshire. And it's really fighting like the energy is... Talk. Yeah, Let's go for it. exactly. Um, oh, we need it. We need more Green MPs yeah. to hold whoever's in government, hold their feet to the fire. I also had a really good chat with the Green Party's uh, deputy, Zach Polanski. He's definitely not your uh, standard party official. Like we met up and he was in a, a very chic pinstripe suit with uh, Dr Martens at the end holding very a cool. water bottle covered in... Uh, dogs and before the interview started he was like I hear you like raving should we go to one I was like this, what, what is happening here um, and you know I said to him just go on give us your big pitch and he did right. I'm a, traditionally a Labour voter sure. not feeling great I'm actually now undecided why should I pick the Greens and not just hope that Labour will eventually do all those things other than my Doc Martens <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Quite seriously, there's no environmental justice without racial, social and economic justice too. And we're joining those dots. And I think when you look at the Labour Party, they claim to be progressive, but they're waving through new oil and gas fields. They won't even uh, lift the child benefit gap. But, cap. But, but maybe they'll change their mind when they get in, right? That's what, what people are saying. This is what they're like with even a sniff of power. Can you imagine what they'd be like when they're actually in power? We've seen Keir Starmer. Let's be frank, he ran on a ticket that was basically Jeremy Corbyn. He was being progressive, he was being on the left, he had socialist principles. And at every possible moment, he has already U-turned. And even when his own party support things like proportional representation and the trade unions supported proportional representation, he just went, nah, not having that. I cannot imagine what would happen if I went up in that conference hall and Green Party members voted on something and me, Carla and Adrian went, no, we're not doing that. One, we wouldn't do that anyway, but two, we would not be leaders for very long. <laughs> and, turning the Green Party red with blood. Uh, I mean, that's grim, but yes, something like that. Um, I but mean, no. I'm a game of Thrones movie, but anyway, please continue. It's all right. I, I'm, I can red wedding it any day. But I think quite seriously, that if people want a party of democracy and a party that will actually stick to its principles, that has integrity and hope, and is talking crucially about joining the dots between the climate emergency and the cost of living crisis, by the way, we don't have a cost of living crisis. We've got to stop saying that. It's an inequality crisis. If you're super rich, you are doing perfectly well. You're still flying around in your private jet, mocking those in poverty beneath you. And ultimately, we need to be taxing those people more with a wealth tax. And I think when we join those dots and we talk about the fact that tackling the climate emergency and tackling that inequality are the same solutions, I think that's something that people can get behind. And I really feel that. I hope you feel it too. You're not leaving this chair until I get a Green Party membership for our view. Well, I know what you're asking. You're going to ask me, aren't I? Did I do the... Did I become a member? Yeah. No. Right. But <laughs> didn't want to be put on the spot, really. So you didn't become a member, but did you, did you, how do you feel about the phrase Woodstock for dickheads in light of actually having been to a party conference? Well, I think, I mean, you know, I wouldn't call anyone that was there a dickhead. A lot of them are yeah. very, you know, they care a lot about politics and they, you know, in fairness, like Zach Polanski particularly did a really good job of, of turning me, you know, maybe green. I'm not well, quite there yet, but I mean, oh, I was, I was interested. You piqued my interest. Interesting. Yeah, but you still come back to this thing, which is their ambitious plan. The scale of their plan maximum is four MPs, which is not enough to enact uh, massive seismic change. And I'm really looking for seismic change. So it's hard to get 
too excited and too in love with it. Well, look, coming up next, uh, we've got dispatches from uh, this week's big party conference, which was, of course, the Labour Party conference. And we're going to be hearing from the Financial Times' George Parker, uh, who's actually there and has all the gossip from Labour's big get-together in Liverpool. Uh, But first, uh, we have to read this out. Uh, Coco, uh, this may shock you, but we actually have a Tory listener. (laughs) As far as we know, we have one Tory listener. uh, And they've sent us a lovely email, but have remained anonymous. (laughs) Which I, I I think probably says a lot about the current iteration of the Conservative Party that uh, even being associated with them is something where you want to just go full John Doe. (laughs) Uh, This is the email. Hey team, I enjoy the podcast a lot, even if I'm a Tory. That said, I wanted to push back on the idea that there is no such thing as a moderate Tory anymore. While it is frustrating and saddening to see so many people move so far to the right, I don't think it's fair to say that there are no moderates left. We could have a whole episode on Penny Mordaunt's conference speech, but Caroline Noakes skipped the conference and said elsewhere that she would never serve in a Suella Braverman-led government. She and Penny are both known for being socially liberal, and there does seem to still be a solid appetite for their views. My hope for the general election is that these moderate voices survive the beating the Tories are surely going to take and then they can help reset things when the party is finally forced to examine what they've been doing. Love the show from an anonymous young Tory. Um, If you haven't seen Penny Morden's conference speech, it features, I think, at least 12 uses of the phrase stand up and fight. And it looks like there has been a catastrophic teleprompter error and she has tried to improvise her way out of it, but can't move off the phrase stand up and no, fight. No, Nish, honestly, she carried the sword <laughs> and it's gone to her head. I'm telling you. That's what happened. Uh, listen, w- there is a genuine concern that in opposition, the Conservative Party could uh, become even more of a sort of right-wing, anti-fact death cult uh, than sections of it already are. It's very difficult for me to have respect for any wings of the Conservative Party, not just because of my ideological and partisanal (laughs) blindness, but equally just because of what has happened in the last 13 years. I think that the Conservative Party needs to rebuild total trust as a respectable political organisation, personally, for me. Um, But we're very happy you're listening. (laughs) (laughs) We're very happy you're listening. Do consider changing your vote. Autumn is upon us, and with it, the official start of spooky season. If the thought of celebrating with a scary movie night secretly puts you off your popcorn, Ruined is the podcast for you. Hosted by horror aficionado and love it or leave it head writer Hallie Kiefer and her squeebish friend and co-host Alison Leiby, Ruined unpacks a different horror movie every week. And for those of you who, like Alison, are just too scared to watch, also me, I'm, I'm, I'm in that gang, fear not, Hallie will ruin the movie for you. I love horror movies. I'm very excited about this. Let Ruined help you survive spooky season with your dignity intact. Listen every week wherever you get your podcasts. The Labour conference in Liverpool is wrapping up as we record this after last week's well, I mean, shit show of a Conservative Party conference. Labour's get-together in Liverpool this week was much more on message. Yeah, in what's likely to be their last conference before a general election, it felt like the Labour leadership was determined to be seen as a government in waiting and a serious party that the voters could trust. Here's Keir Starmer making his pitch to be Britain's next Prime Minister at the Labour Party conference in Liverpool this week. Why Labour? Because we serve your interests. Why Labour? Because we will grow every corner of our country. Why Labour? Because we have a plan to take back our streets, switch on great British energy, 
get the NHS back on its feet, tear down the barriers to opportunity and get Britain building again. A plan for a Britain built to last, a plan to heal the wounds, a plan to turn the page and say in a cry of defiance to all those who now write our country off, Britain must, Britain can, Britain will get its future back. Thank you, conference. It was a confident speech laying out the ambition of a decade of Labour rule. It was heavy on Tory bashing and a little light on policy. But there was a headline-grabbing announcement of a plan to create a wave of new towns on urban land and build one and a half million homes. There was also uh, an unexpected touch of sparkle thanks to a protester who threw glitter over the Labour leader as he was about to start speaking, leaving him looking a little bit like he was on his way to a 1970s school disco. So let's get all the gossip from Liverpool this week from the political editor of the Financial Times, George Parker, a veteran of many a conference. Uh, George, uh, how's the week in Liverpool been? Oh, I tell you what, I'm getting to the end of my tether, to be honest. It's, it's three, three, three weeks on the road. Um, so I was doing the Lib Dems down in Bournemouth, then the Tories of Manchester, and uh, now this one in Liverpool. And by the end of three weeks, it, I know it sort of sounds, sounds a tough gig, but you know, there's a lot of drinking, a lot of eating a lot of late night parties and by the time you get on the train which I'll be doing in about half an hour's time you're so relieved to, <laughs> to be heading back to your own bed uh, George I know you're pressed for time because you literally have to go and get a train right now so we'll try and get through as much stuff as quickly as we can um, before we come to Starmer speech or any of the actual content of the conference I just wanted to ask uh, briefly about how the kind of awful events unfolding in Israel and Gaza um, have impacted and cast a shadow maybe over the conference? Because obviously Labour is trying to present itself as a government in waiting and their foreign policy is obviously going to be a huge part of that. So what have you heard and seen so far uh, from the conference on this? I mean, it was, it was a very sombre mood and I think there was an exception in the sort of Starmer camp that this, this conference was always going to be pushed way down the news agenda. Um, I was at a dinner last night with Chris Mason from the BBC who very unusually was in a restaurant rather than doing a live report into the 10 o'clock news just because of course of what's going on in the Middle East and there's an acceptance of course that that's the way it is it's just a terrible thing and you heard lots of expressions of support for Israel in the conference hall including of course from Keir Starmer there's there was so this you know obviously people are disappointed this is a big moment for them to get their message across that they haven't been able to do so but there's also a bit of relief that what could have happened here and certainly would have happened I think if, if um, Jeremy Corbyn was still the leader is you could have seen quite a lot of problems and splits in the Labour Party about how to respond to the crisis. Um, you know, I've been in the, I was in the hall for closing um, events of the Labour conference in the Corbyn era where people have had Palestinian flags. There was no evidence of anything like that um, really at all at this conference. There were a few people who protested on, in support of Palestine, but yeah, they were a very, very small minority. There was very much noises off from the, yeah, you, you saw Keir Starmer when he was getting his full threshold show of support to Israel getting a standing ovation in the in the conference hall on Tuesday. So let's get on to Starmer's big conference speech then and that alarming moment a protester rushed the stage. True democracy oh. is citizen-led. Politics needs an update. We demand a people's house. We demand a people's house. We are in crisis. And here's how he handled it. If he thinks that bothers me, he doesn't know me. Protest or power, that's why we changed our party conference. That's why we changed our party. Thank you. 
So, George, um, how do you think Starmer coped with that uh, slightly strange start to the speech? Well, it could almost have been scripted by someone in the Labour press office. (laughs) (laughs) I I did a tweet about this saying that it was obviously a great stunt by someone who dressed up as a protester, uh, went onto the stage, literally sprinkled stardust onto onto the leader, (laughs) then encouraged him to take his jacket off, so he literally rolled up his sleeves. It was almost like... It was like a sort of metaphor-ready protest. So, look, I mean, you've got to be lucky with your protesters. Um, and I think Keir Starmer was a bit with that one. I thought he handled it quite well, actually. I mean, you could see initially there was a look of, you know, surprise and probably, you know, he was obviously worried about what was about to happen. Might I'm be not going to lie, George. When I saw him go up on the stage, I was not expecting that the message would be about a people's chamber. Yeah. I was really expecting it was going to be something about the environment, maybe even the, you know, Israel-Gaza crisis. You know, I think you got lucky with the message as well there. Oh, oh my God. Yeah, I mean, it's the kind of process you might expect to see at a Liberal Democrat conference, isn't it? You know, people <laughs> processing about proportional representation. It's, it's very odd. He wasn't introduced as the Prime Minister-in-waiting. He was introduced as the Labour leader. Do you think that is an indicator that they are not being complacent? Yes, you're right that he wasn't introduced as the next Prime Minister and they've been careful not to do that kind of thing. And they always say if we're you know, privileged enough to earn the trust of the British people, you know, but, you know, I think the very strong mood here was, I mean, you mentioned, you said that the Tory conference last week was a bit of a shit show. Um, I think, you know, it, it's one of those conferences which hasn't aged all that well. Um, you know, you, what did you take away from that Tory conference last week? The fact that the Prime Minister has done a big U-turn on a big transport policy, which would have seen a train line go to Manchester and he made the announcement in Manchester. And then all the policies that he subsequently, subsequently announced were turned out to be illustrative rather than firm promises. So it's not gone well for the Conservatives. That That's sort of emboldened people at the Labour conference, I think, to think, well, if that's the best they can throw at us, maybe things are going to work out. They've had, obviously had the, the by-election victory in Scotland in Rutherglen, mm, which has yeah. also raised party morale as well. So I think there's just a bit of a sense of relief that Rishi Sunak didn't come up with more last week. And they've left Liverpool or are leaving Liverpool as we speak in pretty good spirits, I'd say. And hungover. <laughs> very, very much so. <laughs> Um, let's talk about the actual speech itself. Um, how do you feel that he did in terms of getting the balance right? Do you think this was a sort of direct appeal to disaffected Tory voters? Yeah, there was definitely some of that. And I think he said, you know, we're the party that conserves. It was very much pitched at some, you know, people who are, want to be reassured that they're going to be safe. Um, you know, these are difficult times. People are living quite from quite precarious lives at the moment. And they want to be reassured that change isn't going to be dangerous. So sending out a reassuring message about conserving things about economic responsibility. Um, that was part of his message. So stability was a word he kept on using. Um, I think the thing about Keir Starmer is, that he's, you know, if you listen to opinion polls and focus groups, people often say they think he's a bit of a moaner, sounding a bit negative about things, you know, whining all the time, that sort of thing. So I think it was quite interesting that he tried to frame it as a message of hope as well as stability. He'd say, look, what, what is ruined can be repaired and so on. He was trying to paint, paint more of an optimistic message. But as you say, there wasn't a massive amount of policy either in his speech or elsewhere in the Labour conference. It was much more about sort of setting the tone, I think, of what a Labour government would be like. But there was one bit of policy, which was this thing about changing the planning system um, to allow the construction of many more homes, which is an interesting thing. It's the kind of thing that right-wing conservatives often talk about. They're often moaning about the fact the planning system doesn't allow houses to be built. But this idea of building one and a half million homes, building Sometimes on the green belt, building new towns. They're the kind of things that um, the sort of Tories sometimes talk about. And indeed, sort of thing that the house building industry has been 
falling over themselves say fantastic because usually it's an unusual situation for the Labour Party to be in. Because I was all, I always used to just say idly, you know, I was chatting about politics at the dinner table because I'm a sad person. (laughs) But I would always say, oh, whoever the party is that can fix housing, they're going to win an election. Like it's just such a big, glaring, huge problem that affects so many people. Do you think he's done it? He's cracked it with this policy? Well, it's a, it's a really good question. I mean, you know, people talk about planning reforms and it's easier said than done, you know, because say, saying that we're going to build new towns sounds great because you always imagine the new towns are going to be built somewhere else <laughs> when, they're actually, when they're actually turn up in, in your neighbourhood. Um, that's when the problems arise. You know, he talked about you know, the fact we need to have loads more electricity pylons and wires everywhere to, you know, to, to cope with the green energy transition. Again, that sounds great until you've got the pylons in your back garden. So... You know, the, the language is good. I think people, you know, as you say correctly, I mean, housing is a massive, massive problem, a huge problem for for younger voters as well as you obviously can't get on the housing ladder or can't get affordable rented property either because of the housing shortage. Um, so delivering that is absolutely crucial, I think, for whoever wins the next election. There is a lot of opinion polls that suggest the Conservative Party is deeply unpopular, but it suggests that there are still large sections of the country not convinced by Starmer and the Labour Party. Do you think that this conference has done anything to change that? Yeah, I think they were being, I think Labour were probably being a bit more ambitious than that for this conference. I don't think it was just about, you know, getting through unscathed. I think they were trying to present themselves as uh, you know, a government in waiting. And I think you'd have to say Objectively, if you looked at the speeches given by Rachel Reeves, the Shadow Chancellor, and Keir Starmer, the fact that the hall was absolutely rammed for both those speeches, people were being turned away at the door. But there was a very different atmosphere at the Conservative conference. Some of the speeches were delivered in a much smaller hall with lots of empty seats. You got a real sense that the sort of power was shifting from one party to the other. And I think impressions and you know the atmosphere is quite important at these kinds of events. And I think probably Keir Starmer will come away thinking. You know, he looks and sounds and feels a bit more like a prime minister than when he arrived uh, four days ago in Liverpool. Okay, well, listen, thank you so much for joining us, George, and um, have a safe journey home. Thank you very much. There is, of course, still the SNP conference to come, and we'll be chatting more about that uh, next week. Um, Obviously, through the chat with George, we touched on the fact that the Labour Party conference is completely reasonably down the news agenda, uh, given the appalling events uh, in Israel and Gaza. Um, obviously, I would strongly recommend uh, always that you listen to our sister podcast, Pod Save the World, um, where Ben Rhodes and Tommy Vitor try and make sense of what's happening. Uh, the last two editions uh, of those are particularly uh, strong. And I would also urge our listeners to be very, very wary about information that's being passed around on social media, particularly on Twitter, or if you you want to call it X, whatever, the the uh, that platform has at points in the last decade been an incredibly useful tool for tracking conflict um organizing protests you think about the significance of it to the arab spring the black lives matter movement but clearly what has happened in the kind of post elon musk takeover and the stripping of the content moderators for that particular website has left us in a situation where something that was at one point a very valuable news resource is now constantly churning out misinformation. And I would absolutely urge all of our listeners to exercise extreme caution. Mm. And I think that is a policy that should extend to a lot of British newspapers. We need to be exercising extreme caution when taking information uh, from Twitter slash X, because 
it's simply not a reliable source of, of news and information at the moment. Yeah, I have seen with my own eyes um, misinformation, fake AI videos reported on as, as yeah. truth in uh, newspapers. So just, yeah, please take extra cautions and please seek out uh, verified news sources where you can um, and double check and triple check. I have found the cheering of violence from everybody nauseating. Yeah. Civilian death is civilian death. And whether the civilian death is at the hands of Hamas or the Israeli army, civilian death is a tragedy and there is no celebration to be found here. Um, And I still believe it is perfectly possible to find the actions of Hamas absolutely abhorrent, but also strongly believe in liberation for the Palestinian people. I don't believe that those two things are inconsistent with each other. Right, absolutely. This is spiralling out of control very, 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 very fast. Just getting some sort of sense of uh, of de-escalation is, is absolutely crucial. And it's been proven time and time again that people online participating in uh, cheering on war, cheering on death, can create escalation. And that actually has real life impact on those people who live in that region. So even though it might seem... You know, uh, you might feel righteous when you retweet uh, yeah. some, a, bit, a bit of content online that you don't even know if it's verified, by the way. But nonetheless, you retweet it. You feel like you're doing actually that might not be the case. So just take a breath. Stop. Think. I know this is a really um, an issue that people care about. I care about, you know. Yeah. So just uh, I guess the only thing we could say again is just please exercise caution. Yeah. And whatever is going on, there is no excuse for Islamophobia or anti-Semitism of any description. The New York Times calls BritBox the best of British telly. Stream acclaimed original series, including Payback, starring Peter Mullen, Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden, and Archie, the man who became Cary Grant, starring Jason Isaacs. Plus, discover powerful new series like Three Little Birds and the return of BAFTA-winning drama Time, starring Bella Ramsey, Tamara Lawrence, and Jodie Whittaker. Stream the best of British TV only on BritBox. Start a free trial at BritBox.com. So a key battleground of the forthcoming election campaign will, of course, be the NHS. In the last 12 months have seen the health service hit by a series of unprecedented strikes by nurses, junior doctors and consultants. And just in the last week, consultants and junior doctors staged a three-day walkout in England in an ongoing route overpay in what was the longest ever joint strike in the history of the NHS. The Labour leader, Keir Starmer, has in the past urged Labour MPs to stay away from picket lines and threatened to sack any shadow ministers who failed to do so. Contrast that with the sight a couple of weeks ago of President Joe Biden joining a protest outside a Michigan car plant in solidarity with striking members of the United Auto Workers Union. There has, however, been another famous American voice on the NHS picket lines over here. nurses. They took incredible care of my family over the years and what they're asking for is really quite reasonable. Uh, I'm at Great Ormond Street Hospital right now. We can walk a very short distance in many directions in the Bloomsbury neighborhood and there's just unbelievable incredible wealth. So the money's there. 
So just the greed of this government and the fact that they won't... <laughs> you know, I mean, they won't properly tax the richest people to fund these modest requests. It's just crazy. It's crazy when you know the money's there. Um, so I'm just here to help them get it. That's the actor, comedian, and author Rob Delaney supporting the Royal College of Nurses last year. Rob is perhaps best known as the star of Channel 4 comedy Catastrophe. He's also been in many a Hollywood film, recently popping up in the new Mission Impossible film and will be in the forthcoming Deadpool 3. His book, A Heart That Works, has just been published in paperback and is both brutally intimate and fiercely funny memoir, grappling with life and loss. Welcome to Pod Save the UK, Rob. Thanks for having me, guys. <laughs> Thanks very much for joining us. Yeah, for the people uh, watching this as a as a video podcast, uh, look at all, how much fun I was having there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm having a great time. Strikes are generally quite fun. Oh, yeah, they can really be fun. That. And yeah. it's always fun to be surrounded by nurses. The best of us. <laughs> I'm a big, I'm super pro nurse. I'm, I'm lukewarm on doctors. They're fine. <laughs> but it's really the nurses that make it all happen. So anytime, even if it wasn't, it was just a nurse's luncheon, I would have gone. <laughs> How many nurses' luncheons have you crashed in the past year, Rob? Not enough. <laughs> but you've also been, you know, you supported rail workers, mm-hmm. screenwriters. Yeah. Striking, yeah. you're a big believer, right? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, income inequality these days, both in the UK and the US, is is uh, back at Gilded Age levels. Yeah. And there's just, there's enough to go around, mm. you know, because I've now existed... Uh, at, at a few different strata and in a few different tax brackets. So I've had no money and I've been lucky to work in this career and then make a lot of money. And I've just seen there's enough to go around. So you can't hide it from me. Maybe <laughs> I, maybe my sort of success happened too quickly for me to forget <laughs> what it's like yeah. <laughs> at the bottom of the ladder. But it's like, what? What's going on up here? You've been a very, very vocal supporter of the NHS. And mm-hmm. a, a lot of the book deals with your son Henry's illness and death and yeah. your experience and your family's experience uh, of being cared for by the NHS. Mm-hmm. Um I, I just read the book this week oh, wow. and it it's extraordinary and I would absolutely urge everybody to read it. It's an incredible book. Um, it's been a year since it first went out in the world in hardback. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the paperback edition now. Uh, yeah. How do you feel about it now the book's been sort of out in the world and has been read by people and people have had, I guess, pretty visceral responses to it? Yeah, so now that it's been out there for a while, I'm very happy it's out there because I've been contacted now by... I don't know how many um, bereaved parents and bereaved siblings. And so I think, you know, I've realized my story is no better and no worse than any other bereaved parent. But if I tell it truthfully um, and put it out there, then it can do good, just like the other uh, bereaved parents who've helped me and my wife and my kids. So I'm very glad to have taken something um, that was and remains very painful, um, and transmuted some of it into something that can help people. So that's, I'm happy about that. I mean, I first ever thought I should write something when I was in Great Ormond Street Hospital with Henry. And after we'd been there for a while on the kids' uh, cancer wards, you know, seeing new parents come in who've just gotten a cancer diagnosis for their kids. And I would be like, oh my God, what? They're child just got diagnosed with cancer what a nightmare i can't and i'd be like showing him how to use the coffee machine or whatever in the parents kitchen and then i'd be like wait no i'm 
that uh, that's me. I'm yeah. one of them too because you can't believe it. And so um, the only way we've survived this and continue to survive it is by spending time with other mostly people whose kids have died um, and being honest about it and just sort of walking through it together. And so, so my book is like one little tile in the big mosaic of people just trying to help each other through this stuff. So it's, and it's a, it's a perfectly fine tile. It's, it's structurally sound. <laughs> it's a very um, moving tile, Rob. You? Thank yeah, you. yeah, it's great. It's really extraordinary. Is it, what's it like doing promo for something like that? Cause like, you know, you you become used to doing promo right. for things like stand up shows and movies and yeah. but what's it like doing promo for something that you there's so much of your heart in this book it's very weird right yeah. like i know you yeah i like you yeah coco i'm falling in like with you <laughs> um so being here feels safe and good but it can be weird to like yeah. you know do a couple interviews in like a hotel suite and then go to a television studio and then a radio station so Doing the back-to-back promotion when it came out was nightmare. Really awful, and I hated it a lot. Um, and I'm glad it's behind me. I definitely, like, thought, am I going to recover from this? Like, I aged. Yeah. Like, people would see me on TV, like, friends, and would write me and be like, you really look terrible. <laughs> and I'd, and Is that I'd, helpful? Yeah. <laughs> and I'd be like, yeah, I do. And um, so, so... So I don't know. I don't know. How how do you get it out there, though? Yeah. Otherwise, you know what I mean? Like, I wanted people to read it. Like, because if I do, you know, if I do Loose Women and and then do, you know, this podcast and then I do an interview with The Guardian or something, then it's more likely that, like, a, somebody who lives, you know, in a farming community on the outskirts of Yorkshire will get a copy of the book. And, and I live in London. I can walk to a bereaved parents meeting. Yeah. Right? And they helped me very much. What about people who can't? So I I, th- I felt like I had to harm myself in the short term to try to get it out there for people who could use it. There's a section in the book, Rob, about social care and about the cuts to social care. And I, if you would not mind, I would love for you to read just this section out because I think it articulates something very powerful and also something hugely politically significant about what cuts to social care does to the National Health Service. Okay. I hope you'll believe me when I say that the time we spent trying to get Henry home safely was absolutely just as stressful as every horrible detail of his medical care. Hours, days, weeks stolen from families who could be playing with their sick or dying child. But instead, they must beg for help in front of roomfuls of people whose government-assassinated budgets have trained them to be adversaries of families with sick kids. And I'll say it again for anyone who missed it above. It's cheaper for the government for a kid to be at home with a carer rather than occupying a hospital bed on a ward. Not that that was our motive, but come on, are you conservative or not? Just walk people through that, Rob, because the, the Conservative Party has maintained that it's increased NHS spending. Now, we can get into the specifics of that, which are they've decreased the percentage increase year on year, which amounts to a real terms cut to NHS yeah. spending. But talk about what social cuts does mm. to the NHS. Right, so... <laughs> I don't rely on social care anymore now that Henry's dead. Um, do either of you guys have anybody from social care come in your house currently? Not really, no, but okay. I am an unpaid carer around okay. being a podcaster. So okay. I know how families step in and how that 
limits their opportunity to do other things. To do other things. Which, of course, things. you do out of love. Of course. But you also think, maybe it would be nice if someone, a professional, could maybe help me. But then even if you're thinking, like, let's just say, if you're somebody who just thinks in terms of... of pound and dollar signs, you know? I mean, what if we could have you out in the workforce, you know, <laughs> contributing to the taxes more, you know, there's, so there's a lot of reasons, but what happens is there are people, we're aware of this, who would like to have healthcare be private in the UK. And um, what they'll do, because it's a really tough sell, even for a hardline Tory to say, I'm going to cut the NHS. Um, you can want to, but to actually pull it off takes time and effort. So it's got to be more of a death by a thousand cuts thing. Whereas social care is easier to do, right? It's easier to cut because most people aren't elderly. Most people don't have a disabled person at home um, who's relying on it. So, But what happens, though, is you cut that, then those people just immediately have some type of emergency mm. at home, have to go to the A&E, and then they wind up taking a bed on a ward, which costs way more money than the negligible, execrable rates that they pay home carers who drop in and visit, you know? And 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 so they'll cut council's budgets for stuff like that. They'll Councils will be instructed and coached in how to privatize those services and stuff. And so what happens is immediately the NHS does get these de facto cuts because you've got people occupying beds who don't need to be, you know? Um, it's an elderly guy who fell down the stairs and hit his head and got injured because he didn't have somebody there to be like, you take this pill, you know, yeah, yeah, Mr. Yeah. Phillips. Um, and and they're gone in a minute, you know? And so for that reason, we couldn't get Henry home for months, despite the fact that the hospital was like, yep, he's ready to go home. They couldn't and wouldn't discharge him because the community wasn't a safe enough place for him because they didn't have uh, carers who were banded or qualified high enough to take care of him. And that qualification wasn't a nursing degree. It was just like, do they know how to um, clean and protect a kid's tracheostomy mm -hmm. tube, which is something he had. And I don't have a medical degree, but I became qualified pretty quickly to do that. It's, uh, it's not fun, but it doesn't, uh, you know, you don't have to go to school for it. Um, and so, you know, if they'd wanted him to be home earlier, you know, they could have. Um, he could have been home earlier. But he, people like him and um, whomever you're caring for are not deemed, you know, worthy of that. And so then it's easier. It becomes easier in the future to privatize uh, health services more easily. It's weird as well, I think, you know, just talking about that relationship between families and carers, because you, I, I often feel like, I mean, my, I have caring responsibilities, but they're not full time. I yeah. still have a job. I still have a life, you know, but they're, they're something I yeah. have to do. That's fine. And I often think about how my love has been exploited commercially because mm. you're not going to let someone you love suffer. Right. You want yeah. them to live with dignity. You want them to someone to check in. You yeah. want them to have all of that stuff. So, yeah, they, the, the, the system exploits your love. I guess they know that, you know, the, your friends and your loved ones will pick up the pieces so they don't need to. Does that make sense? Well, it's really interesting because then you start to realize that, you know, austerity is a decision that is made and made again each morning when, when you know, certain people in the government wake up and they sign off on it each morning. So it's a conscious choice to devalue these things. So that's maddening, of course. It just makes good economic sense to just fund the hell out of the NHS because all three of our gorgeous bodies are going to fall apart and rot at some point and have some sort of problem and need help. So just acknowledge that and work through it. Yeah. I mean, 
we have to we've we've used private care to take care of my grandmother yeah. and we're very fortunate that between a group of us and yeah. within our family we're able to uh support that financially right but i think it's important to recognize that that is good fortune and realizing yeah. that oh, if yeah. there was you know even without one of three families incomes that are going into that it yeah. would be unmanageable and like yeah, yeah, yeah. with an aging population we're kind of laying a time bomb for ourselves oh, big mm. time mm-hmm. and and you shouldn't have to do that i mean like i know you make an incredible amount of money i saw the car you drove here i mean i know <laughs> that this podcast pays you an unbelievable amount of money but you should still be able to use the nhs and you should still i'm one of those people who's not like well if you can afford it you should you should go private no you shouldn't everybody yeah. should be contributing everybody should be taking the care that they need out of the system and uh and it would be more cost effective too if you're doing that i mean when people talk about in america they'll be like well there's no one size fits all approach to healthcare there absolutely is yeah. you broke your knee you need your knee fixed you know what i mean you have diabetes you need insulin you'll hear things you know in a state that's you know in a country that's 50 states with 50 different healthcare systems insane right yeah. you'd be like well you know in illinois we do it a little different than we do in kentucky why <laughs> Sew up the big gaping wound, meatball. You know, that's crazy. Everybody should use the NHS from the king down to the bottom of the ladder, which is, you know, this Tell you what, it would definitely improve it, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, you had some pretty uh, specific experience of using the American healthcare system after a particularly bad car crash that you wrote about extensively in I your did. last book. So you, yeah. you, you really interacted with that health care system and yes. you've always been amazing at kind of shaking us as a country out of our complacency about what we have uh, with the NHS. I mean, right. I think, I don't think it can be restated often enough, but so please do it again. Okay. How much <laughs> fucking worse is it with the American healthcare system? Well, let me say uh, out of the gate that there are great nurses and great doctors in the, in the U.S. So is there great care to be had? Absolutely. Uh, the problem is, that are you going to be able to access it? And if you are, are you then going to be hounded by medical debt collectors? Yeah. Um, and or perhaps the most popular and widespread problem is you do have private health insurance. Either it's uh, you've bought it on the open market, which is unbelievably expensive. It would be about $1,300 for me to insure my family a month. Wow. A that, month? Yeah, a Sorry. month. A month, right? <laughs> And um, now maybe, um, maybe uh, you can get that through your job as a benefit, which is another thing because people get welded to their jobs in America because they're terrified. So, for example, you know, it would be 21 years ago, almost 22 years ago, I drove a car uh, into a building. My fault. I was blackout drunk uh, on account of my alcoholism. And uh, I've been sober since, so I got sober and, uh, you know, have contributed enough, I guess, to the tax coffers of both the U.S. and the U.K. to make my life financially worthwhile, to the government (laughs) only. But uh, I did have private health insurance, for which back then I paid, I think, $120 a month for 21 years ago. And um, paid out of pocket $120 a month. and But when then once I started to use the insurance and generate bills, the company was like, uh, we don't want to insure you anymore. And they dropped me, which they could do before Barack Obama put on the 
ultimate sticking plaster policy of the Affordable Care Act, which is going to, I mean, if I describe it to you, you're going to be like, what? Would he made it so that every American person had to buy private insurance and no one could deny them, right? This was a mandate, okay? Now, I voted for him aggressively for that policy um, and campaign for him because I was like, what? I can be forced to buy private insurance that I won't be denied because of my own experience. I was like, I can't wait. Please let me pay $120 a month for it. Um, oh, but, but by that time, I had, had a family. Um, and so you're paying for insurance, right? You're paying a monthly premium, okay? Before you can use it, you have to hit your deductible. So that means maybe you have to pay $5,000 out of pocket oh before it me. kicks in. Then to walk in the door for any appointment, you have to pay for maybe a $30 copay. So that's just you to walk in the door, $30. And then the insurance doesn't pay for everything anyway. It only pays for a percentage. And so, and all this money, not all of it, if it went directly into uh, your doctor's or nurse's pockets or for buying a new, you know, MRI machine, then maybe they'd have a leg to stand on. But it doesn't. It goes to, like, CEOs and advertising people. I mean, you see the ads for these companies that are as slick as anything. You know, during the financial crisis of 2007, 2008, um, there were health insurance companies that loaned money to banks to help bail them out. It's So the the amount of money being spent in the U.S. that doesn't go to healthcare, but rather it goes to these McKinsey friggin' yeah. MBA consultant scumbags um, is unbelievable. So that's what a lot of people want to have happen here, Right. So the easiest solution is just turn up the cash spigot to the NHS, you know, um, and even that would be better. I know it's more complicated than that, but not by a lot. And so it's mad hearing you describe that because it basically means that just one bad roll of the dice, you get ill, you crash oh, yeah. your car, anything, it's game over. It doesn't matter how much you worked. It yep. doesn't matter, you know, even if you had the fortune of having a support network, it could all yeah. be gone. Mm -hmm. And that is, that idea of the lack of safety net is something yeah. that is, I'm really worried is happening here. Yeah, I mean, totally. NHS aside, but even when they're talking about like, you know, benefit yeah. cuts yeah. and just, just, you had the bad luck to have a heart attack and now yeah. you have to have an, you have to go on to benefits. Oh my God, like it's game over yeah. for you, you know? You have to sell your home. I mean, yeah. it's it's terrifying. Yeah, people commit suicide due to medical debt in the United States. That unfortunately, it's not a rare occurrence. So, you know, that that's what private healthcare leads to, mm. um, like as sure as the sun rises and sets. And I'm against that, <laughs> you know? If you have $10,000 or more in credit card, medical, or personal loan debt, let National Debt Relief's award-winning team negotiate with your creditors to drastically reduce what you owe. Inflation and living expenses are skyrocketing, and Americans are relying on credit cards more than ever. With the recent decision to keep interest rates higher than they've been in years, your debt is not getting any cheaper. Start your debt-free journey with National Debt Relief today. Go to nationaldebtrelief.com right now to start your free consultation. That's nationaldebtrelief.com. I am really curious to ask you because you are, are have always been a politically activated and engaged person. You've been yeah. very politically activated and engaged here, even yeah. politically, uh, politically activated in the States and you've done 
lots of fundraising and campaigning for the Democratic Socialists. And yeah. it's how does it feel to look at American politics as an American outside of America right now? Yeah. So it's interesting uh, to see how much uh, the corporate media wants another Trump victory. Because, for example, I don't know if you would have paid attention to this, but we had midterm elections yeah. last year and they were like, you know, they were like preparing the funeral for the Democratic Party beforehand. And then whoops, yeah. they drastically outperformed the polls, which were all funded by big media companies who were like, because the best thing in the world for the Rupert Murdoch's, the Paul Dackers, the whoever's in charge of CNN is for half the people to hate the other half, right? Yeah. So they really work hard to keep it like that, you know, maybe with a slight tilt towards the right, you know, the, yeah. um, because it's just easier. If we hate each other, then we're not going to look up at what the boot on our neck, you know? Yeah. And so I am disheartened. But if you see the midterms and then after that, um, Roe v. Wade was struck down by the Supreme Court and women and the men who love women all over the United States are like, hold the phone. And so they have every single special election has gone in in a, a pro-choice direction, right? So all these polls now that are like, it's on a knife's edge and like CNN and the New York Times, they are ripping their hair out to to focus on negative things with Biden. So so to me, that's really interesting because like, you know, your average American person is somebody I enjoy and want to spend time with, you know, like, like I have, like, I will happily hang out with like a Republican voter or a Tory voter, you know, who makes under 75,000 pounds a year. <laughs> once you click into, once you yeah. get above that and you vote Tory, then, you know, you need to be caged or mulched. <laughs> no um, one wants I'm to kidding. have a point with Mark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, but there are people like nerds like us who are like, I know, why don't I spend every free waking second reading every news source and parsing <laughs> them to put together what I think is the truth. You know, normal people are like, oh, it was in the newspaper. It must be true, you know? Yeah. And those people aren't idiots. They're just living their lives trying to raise their kids and take care of their grandparents, yeah. their, you know, and all this stuff. And so the average guy on the street or lane or avenue or path, I don't know if you're somewhere more rural, is a good person. But the people, it's, yeah, it's the billionaires. If you're angry at anybody other than a billionaire, you've got to ask yourself, you know, okay, let me look at that, you know, because you might be wrong. Well, on the subject of uh, politics and our misdirections, what we find, <laughs> let's talk about Britain. Great. <laughs> yeah. um, as you know, we've just had the Labour Party conference. Mm -hmm. uh, Starmer is generally being touted as the next prime minister, although yeah. in fairness to him, he didn't say that when he walked out. Yeah. Um, how are you feeling about him? I mean, about him personally, I don't know him. I live like one constituency away from him. I've never met him. I mean, so I try not to go on like vibes. I don't think that's really important. I try to go by policies and stuff. So with that, he really... Only yesterday, like, started to, like, say some things where I was like, oh, that's better than the status quo, yeah. you know? So I would rather fight against Starmer and his cabinet than the one that we've got now, you know? I mean, to date, they've been pursuing a strategy that may pay off, right? Historically, though, when people don't promise anything, they don't deliver anything, mm. right? So there's... 
you know, you could, I could be convinced that the way labor is operating now is a good idea if once they got into power, they were like, let's boogie, right? Yeah, yeah. But these people are so cautious and, and so technocratic that uh, they don't inspire confidence in me. I would love to be proven wrong. I mean, I feel like I'm really trying to like look into it. Like every yeah. sort of, like I'm waiting for hidden clues. Um, Starmer came out to an Ibiza Club Classic and I was like, I think that's a message. Yeah, He's yeah, sending yeah. a message uh-huh. to the young people. Oh, I totally. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm so, I, like you, I'm looking for the clues, looking for the wink, as you put it, Nish. I know. Um, but yeah, it's we not sort here, of discussed in a previous episode that, you know, is this entire campaign conducted on a sort of wink strategy of when we're in power? But it's a dangerous game. I, yeah. To play. I mean, who knows? Like, look, okay, here's the bombshell poll quote. I think Joe Biden is the best president of my lifetime. Okay. Now, I campaigned aggressively against him, like as much as I could uh, to get Bernie Sanders the nomination. He didn't. When I went to vote on the big, long American ballot, I voted for all these little races that I was really excited, like who's in charge of schools in California, you know? And there, so there are people I was super passionate. When I was there, I was like, Biden, uh, fine, you know? And um, and now, now when I say best American president in my life, that doesn't mean I like him or think he's a good person or want to have lunch with him. The bar is low as hell. <laughs> but he is the first president. And when I say he, I mean him and his cabinet and the people, you know, who are making his decisions. So Biden, Biden Co. or whatever it is, um, because just the he has the spigot has been turned in the right direction with redistributive policies going downward. So if that's the metric you use, and I can't think of a better one, um, he's the best, easy the best. And he's the first president who has grappled with, like he does something Obama didn't do. Like Obama was like, I think I can work with Mitch McConnell. No, you can't, yeah. you know, and Joe Biden knows that that's not the case, you know, and, and he's like a post-Trump president who gets, you know, what's got to be done to some degree. Uh, again, uh, Biden, if you're listening, no, I don't want to have lunch with you. <laughs> you. No, I'm not coming to the White House. I don't think you're cool, fun, funny, what any memes, you know, whatever. <laughs> But he is so. So for me, when people are like, "I'm just not inspired," or he's old, I'm like, "I don't care." You know, it's not you're not voting for the guy. When you vote for who you want to have lunch with, I don't even know what to say to you. Yeah. You know, and but most people do. Um, but so anyway, what I'm saying is, Starmer could win and do a good job. It could happen. Anything can happen. But it certainly doesn't smell like it's going to happen. I mean, well, it's the you know, it's the big tent sort of scenario, right? So like, as long yeah. as there's enough. You know, uh, people allowed in the party that can say to Starmer when he's in, can we just try and be a bit more redistributive or can we we, we have a little think about, uh, you know, taxing big, big major tech companies more? You know, as long as those people are in the, you know, the room for a chance, I think there's a concern when you look at the way the party's being run that those voices are being pushed out. Oh, big time. The tent isn't big enough. Labor's yeah. tent's not big enough. That's one thing America's done well. You know, when Sanders didn't get the nomination, they were like, all right, but here's a massive, obviously people are insane about you, even if you didn't win the nomination, you know, so here's the head of this, here's the leadership of this Senate committee and stuff like that, you know, so whereas labor has been, you know, mercilessly cutting people out of the party. I mean, that's stupid. So I I genuinely want them to win, you know, because, again, I would rather be at an NHS protest with them in number 10 uh, and having the leadership of, of parliament and all that. But, you know, that I think is such an I think it's such an important thing for people to understand, because I do think one of the things that Biden has done well 
even when he was campaigning, is that he campaigned as the kind of broad church Democrat president. Mm-hmm. And the concern with Starmer is that he his he's more in the kind of quest to appear electable, whatever that means. Uh, he has frozen out a substantial section of the party that is very politically animated. Can I say something? I think that he isn't campaigning to us. He's campaigning to like newspaper and business owners. One thing about the UK that I really don't like and I really (laughs) prefer about the United States is that like news organizations, and they're dwindling and becoming fewer and it is becoming more like the UK, but the UK is has some of the most practiced. I mean, we're talking centuries old media companies and conglomerations that are so coordinated and so powerful that you know there are a few people who can push a button in yeah. the UK and that'll determine what the head headline news is mm. the next day. And people are like, oh, okay, you know. I mean, it's easy to. So there's a bit of a managed democracy thing happening here that I think is a little worse than the U.S. Um, again, proof is in the pudding. I choose to live here uh, for a variety of reasons. I've just simply been here by happenstance, and I like it, and I like the people. And, I, you know, the NHS is amazing. Mm-hmm. There's still a better safe, social safety net here despite some people's best efforts. There's no guns. I'm not going to get a shot on my way to – or, or I'm not gonna, my kids aren't going to get a shot at school, yeah. you know, knock on wood. Um and so there, uh, there's a lot that I love about the UK, but one thing is not that I don't love is the coordination of the media. And so, so he's obviously, you know, campaigning for like Paul Dacker and Rupert Murdoch, yep. you know, rather than us, which is who we should be campaigning for. But yeah, that I think it, whenever people in the UK talk about, well, you know, obviously the leftist media, I'm like, mm-hmm. where's that me? coming? <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck is that's that coming adorable. From? <laughs> I mean, that's like charming when people say know, that. It's so sweet. I want to tickle them under their chin and be like, somebody's a cutie pie. <laughs> so, Rob, I'm afraid we're going to have to let you go relatively soon. So, But before we do that, I just want to talk about what you're up to next. Okay. Well, so I'm doing a lot of stand-up. Um, the film that I was doing uh, is on strike, or rather, you know, the Screen Actors Guild remains on strike. So hopefully that'll be done soon, and then I can resume work um, on on Deadpool three because obviously people need that <laughs> yeah. in their lives. It's very important, very important to the health of the nation and the world that they get it, um, and if they get my performance, I feel bad for people who are not able to be continually, you know, hitting refresh on Rob Delaney content. <laughs> Um, um, what does Tom Cruise smell like? You know, he, I don't wouldn't say that he had a smell. I spent one week with him in one room. Um, I, so he, I, he, as he did the best thing you could do, which is not have a smell, you know, because after a while you might get tired of it. Uh, This is a PSUK exclusive. Tom Cruise is entirely odorless. Yeah, he has no odor, yeah. Wow. uh, I mean, there are pheromones, so you're very charged up, but those don't have a, a smell, you know, so... You get very riled up around him because he's very exciting um, uh, molecularly. Um, and, yeah, no, I had a great time on that one. Yeah. I feel like we should put Tom Cruise on a picket line. You know, because he's like he's very good at, like, getting the crowd going. Oh, God, yeah. I wonder if he'd be up Although, for it. I got to say, uh, no, I'm sure he would be. But it is funny, like, when I've been doing these rallies of late and you go up, like, I'll go up and then, like, Mick Lynch will come on yeah. after me. Yeah. And I'm, like, a professional talker. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, I try to la- talk and make people laugh and stuff. And I'm practiced at, at talking extemporaneously and stuff. 
it's so much scarier to go up and share a bill with Mick Lynch or yeah. Eddie Dempsey than it is Chris Rock because <laughs> these guys just know how to rile up a crowd. Right. They make look, because you know how like sometimes we'll do a show and there's like a, a warm up comic, yeah. you know, and that's a very specific skill set that I tip my hat to. So he, these guys make the warm up comic. They're like the ultimate warm up comic. <laughs> um, I just can't. So I'm always very nervous when I do this. So, so Tom Cruise, I'm sure would do a great job, but I think he might be like, whoa, this is harder than I thought. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to your next tour. Support Act McLean. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> It'll be me opening for him. <laughs> Uh, Rob, thank you so much for joining us. And once again, I can only underline uh, A Heart That Works is available in paperback and is extraordinary. Absolutely great. Hope you're singing all the jingles today. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I feel like it's helpful for everyone to be able yeah. to know the end of section. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. You can get in touch with us by emailing PSUK at reducedlistening.co.uk. We also love hearing your voices, so do send us a voice note on WhatsApp. Our number is 07514644572. Internationally, that's plus four four seven five one four six four four five seven two. We'd love to get your thoughts on what we've discussed on this episode, or you can send in a question about British politics or suggest something you'd like us to cover. In a couple of weeks, we've got Scotland's first minister, Hamza Youssef, joining us, and we'd love to be able to put some of your questions to him. So if you have something to ask him, give us an email at psuk at reducedlistening.co.uk. Are you going to sing us out? <laughs> uh, do you want me to? I only want you to do that. <laughs> Pod Save the UK is a reduced listening production for Crooked Media. Thanks to senior producer Musty Aziz and digital producer Alex Bishop with additional production support from Annie Keats Thorpe. Video editing was by Will Darkin. And the music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos, this week performed by Coco Khan. Thanks to our engineer, David Dagahi. The executive producers are Dan Jackson, Madeline Herringer and Anishka Sharma, with additional support from Ari Schwartz. If you or your podcast has a theme tune and you would like Coco to perform it, please contact us on PSUK at reducedlistening.co.uk. How does that song end? How does this, our theme tune end? It just fades out, doesn't it? It does sort of come to a resolution, but it does largely fade out. Okay, so yeah. should I fade out now? Yeah. Okay, so I'm just going to, I'll bring it down now. Yeah. I'll bring it out to the fade back. Yeah. Watch us on the Pod Save the World YouTube channel. Follow us on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram where we're Pod Save the UK, all one word. And hit subscribe for new shows on Thursday on Amazon, Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> I faded it out. I faded it out. <laughs>